Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Okay, Fetter, here we go again. Another Sunday, another message, and yet I still feel like I'm in over my head. I know God's Word is powerful and changes lives, but I honestly don't know why people want to listen to what I have to say. I've been a senior pastor at Fusion for 12 years now. I'm in my 40s. You'd think after this long, I'd feel some confidence, right? But still, nervous and insecure. And now you have nowhere to run. So Fetter, get out there on stage. You know you'll never be enough, but you know God is more than enough. So just be honest, smile, and share what you think God has laid on your heart. Oh, and make sure your pants are zipped. You're on camera, dude. <laughs> and talk about poor planning, I wore jeans that buttoned, so I can't even do that. So uh, anybody else understand that battlefield that we sometimes wage, the thing that's always happening in your mind? Can you identify with what I was just kind of walking you through of, of a pep talk that often goes through in my mind, struggling between insecurity and confidence, sometimes putting on fake confidence, like you know what's going on and you know what to do in this scenario when deep down you don't have a clue. The balance between kind of trusting in God and, and trying to put everything out there for, that you say, God, I trust you with all of it. I just want your outcome. I want your will. And, and you're kind of, you can even be on your knees and you're like, God, I just want to give it all to you. I just believe that, that you have in mind what's good and what's great for me. And then something happens. And you're like, but wait, can I grab those two things and bring them back in? Because I want to control the outcome of those. The battle be- between faith in what God can do and the fear that he won't for you. In some seasons of life, there's so much uncertainty And we can easily become paralyzed by the uncertainty. Jesus even told us that part of why he was here teaching us was to help us navigate the uncertain moments and pains in life. In John 16, we read it last week, Jesus says, I have told you all this, everything I've taught you, everything I've tried to prepare you for, everything I've instilled within you. I've told you all this so you would have peace in me, not in your circumstance. Here on earth, your circumstances, you have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. When he said that, he hadn't overcome the world yet. It was kind of a statement of what was coming. In fact, in the next few hours, they would have doubted what he had to say there, because Jesus himself would experience the promise he just made to his disciples. He would experience the trial and sorrow of rejection. The abandonment of those who said they cared about him would scatter and run away. He would experience torture and public shameful execution, all at the hands of an angry mob. And all of that would be so he could overcome the world and bring a victory he could share with all of us, with all creation. As a part of that victory Jesus accomplishes, he leaves and he returns back to heaven. And then he says, it's good that I'm leaving because I'm going to send someone else, a comforter, an advocate, God's spirit, who comes and lives inside of us when we believe Jesus Christ is our Savior, that the same presence, the same power at work in Jesus is now at work inside of us. Also, we can navigate life in this broken world that still has sin present, that still has evil present, where some days are filled to the brim with uncertainty about how things are going to play out throughout the rest of today, or tomorrow, or this week, or next month, or 10 years from now in the long term. But let's be honest, the gift of the Holy Spirit doesn't solve all of our problems, The Spirit makes Himself available to help us through the problems we face, but we'll still experience trials and sorrows. Jesus promises that. We'll still have days of difficulty and struggle. We'll still experience pain, and we'll still offend one another and have our hearts kind of broken. We'll experience wounds both physically and emotionally and relationally. Sickness and disease are still a part of our lives. We'll have bad days. We'll have to to navigate life with self-centered, irritating people. Maybe you're one of them. We'll have to battle financial problems, things we didn't anticipate having to battle. We'll experience relationships that go south and one of a million other rotten things just waiting to happen to you. And maybe that bad thing that will happen to you is coming tomorrow. Dun, dun, dun. I know this all sounds like bad news, right? And it would be if we were left alone to fend for ourselves, but we aren't. God chooses 
The infinite God who designed the universe chooses to walk through our little squeaky lives with us. He walks into the trials with us. That is really good news. And and he gives us tools along the way to help us navigate it. He gives us the tool of his word to give us direction and to give us focus, to, to correct us, to redirect us. God offers so much help. He gives us peace in uncertain times. That's what we talked about last week. That when things seem to be spinning out of control in the world around us, we can still experience peace that passes all understanding. Because the peace made available in Jesus, it's not built in us by what happens to us. The peace of God is built in us by who lives in us. Therefore, it can never be changed. It can never be compromised. It can never be taken. It can never be risked. Because it's outside and apart from us, but it's built within us. So in uncertain times, we're desperate for peace. We talked about that last week. That was our focus. Today, I want us to look at what is required for the peace of God to be something we get to live in consistently, sustainably. How how do we maintain that focus on peace, the peace of God that transcends circumstances? Because there's a good chance last Sunday you were here and you heard me talk about peace and you left feeling very peaceful. And then you had a conflict after lunch, and you're just like, that's it, it's out the window, it's gone, I'm not at peace anymore. So how do we live sustained? How do we maintain a focus on the peace that's available in Christ, that Christ builds within us, a a peace in Him? And the only way for that to happen is in uncertain times, we have to fight the right fight. Fight the right fight. Now, this is a word that kind of jumps out to me off of the page, off of the screen, because in the last year, year and a half, there has been a lot of fighting in our world, isn't there? There was a a polarized, volatile election cycle uh, last year, a few months ago, that that not only within political parties and candidates, but even fights over the election process and how ballots are verified and counted. There's been a variety of opinions and conversations over the last year and a half about racial differences and, and, and people's opinions about what's the best way forward for our nation to bring greater unity and equality to all people. There are fights over how to honor and be grateful for those who serve, in, serve our communities in law enforcement. How do we honor them? But, but at the same time, how do we, we guard against bad eggs that are in every sector of, of society? How do we identify them and, and protect society from those who might use their authority to take advantage or harm others? Fights about what to do with moments of our national history that maybe are embarrassing or even downright wrong. And the monuments that exist to remind us of those times and opinions about all of that. There's fights from different states and different leaders of varying levels of authority and that have fought through what what do we do in the heights of a global pandemic? How do we move forward with masks, with education, with the economy, with community events, with vaccinations? There's even been fights inside of churches about how to navigate the COVID situation while it was happening and how to address what's going to come as a result post-COVID. Maybe there's even been some fights in your home, under your roof, about some of these very things over the last year or year and a half. There's so many examples we could mention, and there's so much fighting, so much disagreement, so much argument, so much hostility in our world. And it's often because the people of this world don't wage war the way that God wages war, the way that God shows his children to wage war. The weapons that we tend to use one to another in this world are not divine weapons. There's so many battles that have been waging over the last 18 months, and normally the crosshairs are fixed on people. People. You put people in the crosshairs, they're the enemy. And we have these endless up-to-the-minute updates available to us on these smart devices and on the internet and on a computer and on a television screen where we get the latest, most, most detailed report and somebody that's spinning it according to their agenda and they're sharing some of the truth but not all of the truth because it supports the narrative that they want and that feeds the fights even more. And in the midst of all of this we're trying to navigate, we quickly forget that the greatest influence on our thinking is supposed to be the word of God as followers of Jesus, not all these other thoughts and opinions and motives and agendas in a dark, broken world. I mean, the trials and sorrows of this last year have been significant and legitimate. The conversations that need to happen around all of these topics need to happen. But if, in, if we aren't careful in the midst of the tension we all feel, we can forget to fight the right fight and start fighting the wrong fight. See, the enemy of God is is identified by Jesus himself 
as a master of deception and distraction. Satan is so effective at causing tension in us and in relationships and with other people. Satan just loves to steal, kill, and destroy. Continue to create tension and then increase the temperature of that tension to where it's absolutely, it's at a fever pitch ready to explode. And that often causes us, feels us persuaded as if we're trapped, as if we have to be defensive to want to pick up weapons and then go, go to battle with the wrong fight and the wrong weapons against the wrong enemy. Just two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 6 at the end of our series, Made for More, a portion of scripture that specifically, profoundly helps Jesus' followers relocate their crosshairs on who the real enemy is. Ephesians 6, 12, God wants us to understand we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Those of the spiritual realm over the darkness and brokenness of this world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God makes it clear the real enemy, not flesh and blood. The real enemy is not one person that you have just locked on, that you just despise. The real enemy is not one organization that you just despise. The real enemy is the one who's behind the scenes pulling strings to increase tension and conflict and destruction. The one who's already been defeated, but most of the world doesn't know that. And so he's fighting with everything he can to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says we have peace now for those who are found Because he's overcome the world, and he's overcome the ruler of this world who is the devil. No matter how uncertain things may seem right now, the only way forward in conflict is to fight the right fight. And the biggest battlefield you and I have, the right fight, it's the one nobody else can see. It's in our own mind. It's the only thing we actually have some level of control over. Our thoughts, our desires, and our dreams being placed in submission to our Savior. That's the right fight. The Bible calls this renewing your mind. It calls this taking every thought captive. God says he's given us, even in that opening video, not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. The greatest determination of your day and how it goes is dependent on how well, how good you are at fighting the right fight, how focused you are on the right fight, so that when doubts or pain or struggle come into your mind, You go back to reflect on your identity in Christ and who he's designed you to be, not what anybody else has to say about you. Not even what what your inclinations or the cravings of your flesh might be telling you that it wants. That when you go through struggle, when you go through trial, you go back to the truth of how valuable you are to God, that he would send his son to lay down his life for you. You go back to, your, to the fact that God holds your present. He also holds your past. He also holds your future in the palm of his hands, and he cares about you. You go back to the truth that the authority of his word is the highest authority in your life, and you are choosing to honor it as such and humble yourself in submission to that truth. Your emotional well-being and health has more to do with what happens between your ears than anything else that happens to you in life. There's a great illustration of this during World War II. In all the prison camps where the Nazis were holding Jewish captives, history accounts that those that held on and survived the most extreme hardship and treatment only did so because they had, they had something to fight to survive for. They had a dream they were fighting for. A, a grandmother that, that when, the, when the war started had a grandson she never held, and she held on to the dream of meeting that grandchild and holding that grandchild in her arm, it, arms. It gave her a, a fight to survive. A musician that wanted to fight to survive so he could play that one, last, that one last brilliant piece of music that he had rehearsed with his orchestra, but they never had the opportunity to perform before the war started. A young person that wanted to someday become a doctor and help people or become a lawyer and help people or to become a historian or an artist or a whatever. A young person that wanted to one day be a mom or a dad, to own a house, to, to build a family. And in the most deeply disturbing, dark and hopeless conditions, whether in a concentration camp or in hiding in Europe during the war, hoping they weren't discovered, those that survived held in their minds a reason to survive. A reason to fight and something to fight for against their fears, against the struggle, and against the pain. Whereas so many others who didn't survive, they gave in to the battle and they just gave up. They stopped going out in the middle of the night trying to find food to eat because they were paralyzed by fear. They gave up and they just allowed their bodies not to fight anymore because it was such intense intense pain and, and, and despair. And they whittled away to nothing and eventually closed their eyes and didn't wake wake up again. 
It's interesting, there's been studies that have been done since World War II on Holocaust survivors. And what's amazing is their resiliency and adaptability actually led them, you can measure, um, uh, researchers have measured how much more successful their marriages were, how much more successful they were professionally, because they were resilient. They were, they were more flexible and adaptable to conditions outside of their control. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. We see the same kind of focus and teaching through the Apostle Paul, who himself experienced some extreme circumstances where his life hung in the balance and he didn't control the outcome, where the pain that he experienced was severe. In the only letter he wrote to the church in Rome, Paul famously wrote about his own battle with his thoughts, the battlefield of his mind. He writes in Romans chapter 7 that there's things he wants to start doing, he just doesn't seem to start doing. There's things he wants to stop doing, he can't seem to stop doing. That there is this conflict within him, within him internally, and he just feels like a wretched human being. Then you look at one of his other letters that he wrote, the second letter he wrote to the churches in Corinth. Rome got one, the church in Corinth was so messed up, they got two letters. Listen to what Paul writes about the battle of our thoughts. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. Now remember, the audience he's writing to are Christians in the city of Corinth under incredible persecution. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. It's interesting. What Paul's saying is here, the weapons of this world don't have divine power and can't demolish strongholds. He's saying the weapons of this world are incredibly weak and insignificant, yet oftentimes it's what we run to because it's what we think we can control, but they don't have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, what a great and vivid statement in the, the NIV translation, divine power, power of God to demolish strongholds. We live in this world. We don't fight like the world. The weapons we fight with are different, and our weapons are divine origin. Now, in the original Greek language, the word that we translate here to be power is where we get the English word dynamite from, right? I mean, so that kind of gives you a pretty stark image in your mind, right? You look over here. Here's a mountain. You fill it with dynamite. Boom. No more mountain, right? Like it destroys things, blows it up. Even something completely encased, you bury dynamite in it. All of a sudden, boom, you're going to have a big hole where once you didn't have a hole, and the word that we translate here to be stronghold, which isn't a word we use a lot, right, in, in conversation. We probably don't use the word stronghold much, but it's literally translated to give us the image of a fortress, a fortress in an ancient city. And now, in, in the ancient world, you would build a fortress not on the outskirts of the city, you would build it at the absolute center of the city. The fortress is where those who were in leadership would be, military command, all of that would be rooted in the, the fortress. That way, if there was an invading army, they'd have to get through your military on the outside of the city, then they'd have to breach the walls of the city and the guards posted around there, then they'd have to make it through the actual city of all the people that inhabit it and all the, 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 the law enforcement or the, war, the soldiers that are there, then they have to breach the fortress. So it's a place that's designed to be almost impenetrable. In my mind, I often think about you know, the movies that I've seen or, or, or moments in history where we know in hindsight, like on September 11th, immediately when, when, when planes crashed into significant buildings, those who were in leadership were taken to deep underground bunkers that, you know, undisclosed locations that were almost impenetrable, where most people don't even know where they are. They just know, we just know they exist. But it's a place taken in, in moments of crisis to find shelter. That's an idea of a fortress. So this one verse packs a punch. God wants us to understand he's made available to us weapons like dynamite that can blow up deep underground impenetrable forces that the devil has trapped us in. But see, we have misunderstandings about strongholds. And what really is a stronghold? What is this fortress? What really is the strategy of the devil to trap us? We tend to think about strongholds as our behaviors, our addictions, our sins, the things that we do, our bad habits. Those are the things like, I keep doing this, and I keep doing this, and I keep doing this, and I wish I could stop doing it, but man, it's just got a stronghold. It's, it's, I'm, I'm just in this fortress. I'm just trapped. I can't escape. As if the act of sinning is the stronghold. But see, Satan is so much more clever than that. He knows that wrong thinking will always, always, always produce destructive living. Wrong thinking will always, always, always produce destructive living. If he can influence the way we think, 
He knows he can derail us from God's plan for our lives. This is really the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus talks about. He, he talks about sin, the battle with sin, and he talks about the internal desires that we have, right? He says, you know, you've been, they, it's been said that adultery is a sin. They're like, yeah, amen, absolutely. That's what the Old Testament says, but I tell you that lust in your heart is actually where, that's actually you've committed sin already. They're like, whoa, he's raising the bar here. Yeah, he's helping us to see that if that's where our thoughts go, it's ultimately going to lead us down that path. That the thinking we have today will one day manifest itself in our behavior. And that the stronghold that we're trapped in really has more to do with the battle in our mind than it has to do with anything that we're already doing or that we feel trapped by. Satan knows wrong thinking always produces destructive living. You know, you look at a fortress in an ancient city, they didn't just snap their fingers and then boom, it was built. It was built one brick at a time, just like Minecraft. I don't understand that game. My kids love it. But you build stuff with bricks and different combinations of colors or soil or wood or stone or diamond or granite. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It just never ends. There's no point to it. It's just, there's no boss to beat. There, you never win the game. Like I don't get it. My kids love it. But one brick at a time, and they built these fantastic little worlds that just look like a bunch of squares to me. I don't see it either. Every ancient fortress was built one brick at a time. And that's how Satan builds a stronghold in our lives. One lie after one lie after one little lie after another little lie and another little lie. Until all of a sudden we don't even realize what we're surrounded by. Walls of lies we're trapped in. And it leads us down a path of a self-centered pursuit of pleasure that one day we'll wake up. We would never think this now, but one day after we've, after we've surrounded ourselves with enough lies and we've believed them, we'll actually defend the very things that one day, that, that in God's eyes, he says, no, that's destructive, but you just, you've surrounded yourself with lies. This is going to blow up your life and you're defending it and chasing it. And we don't even know how to look for the weapons of divine power that God has given us to blow up the strongholds of lies. See, one lie fixed in your mind, left unchecked by God's word or by a brother or sister in Christ challenging it, it leaves the door open just wide enough for God's enemy to twist us up and he can destroy things. Biblical examples of that, look in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. Eve with the serpent. What's the serpent say? He plants a lie, a doubt. Is that really what God said? You won't die. You'll actually be like God. If he would have said, nah, don't trust him, just rebel against God, she would have said, are you kidding me? But no, he plants a lie, a doubt. It's a brick, then another brick. Did he really say that? You won't die. You'll actually be like God. That leads her down a path of, okay, I'm going to try it. Second Samuel, David is on his roof watching the sunset. All of a sudden, he's out there enjoying the fresh breeze of the evening, and he looks over at his neighbor's house, and he sees, oh, wow, there's a woman down there taking a bath on her roof, and a lie plants in his mind. Well, I mean, if she's out there doing that, she obviously doesn't care. I mean, I'm the king. Like, this is my roof. Mine's a little higher than hers. I mean, if she's out there, who am I to leave? I guess I could watch. And so he lingers, and he allows those lies to exist. And then he starts to have other thoughts, that, lies that lead to other, wow, who's that? I want to meet her. And ultimately, he ends up killing her husband to hide his impropriety. Maybe Apostle Paul's the worst illustration of little bricks of lies. He wasn't even willing to consider that Jesus could be the Messiah. So what did he do? He would applaud the persecution and execution of the earliest Jesus followers. He would, at any cost, do everything he could to, to exterminate Christianity until ultimately he realizes He's been tricked. He's been living his life in a fortress of pride and arrogance, thinking he knew the mind of God, thinking he knew everything God would do, until all of a sudden he has a face-to-face -face encounter with the risen Christ. And his decisions, his life, that fortress, had led to the deaths of so many. Lies are Satan's building blocks for every stronghold in our lives. The stronghold is not the act. It's not the sin. It's the thousands of little lies that we've been convinced to believe that build a fortress around us that is many dozen feet thick and we're trapped in. So what fortress or stronghold is the enemy of God trapped you in? Do you know? 
I mean, the devil and his demonic forces, they're opposed to the throne of God. They're in opposition to the love of God. And they want to affect our lives in such a way, to such a degree that they can warp our thinking and pervert us and keep us trapped inside a stronghold that maybe we don't even realize exists until all of a sudden we just start standing in our fortress and we blame all these outside forces for everything going wrong in our lives. And one lie at a time after another lie and another and another and God's enemies trying to pervert the way we look at the world, pervert what we understand about God. He wants to get us to believe lies about God, about ourselves, about other people, about our circumstances, about what's happening to us. And he wants to persuade us to act on those lies and then wonder afterwards why everything is always such a mess that we touch. Because so often some of the things we do are rooted in lies we're believing. The stronghold of the devil is deception. So what does he try to get us to believe? He tries to get us to believe things like, you can't trust him. You can't trust her. You better keep your eyes on them. You better give them only a little bit of rope because you don't know if they're really going to do what they say they're going to do. He tries to deceive us with things like, oh, you'll always be broken. You'll always be messed up. I mean, look where you came from. No one will ever love you. Are you kidding me? You'll never succeed. You don't have what it takes. You don't amount to anything, and everybody knows it. You are disgusting. You'll never find love. You'll never have a good marriage. Yeah, a lot of other people can, but it's just not in the cards for you. You don't have a chance in this life. You're too old. You're too young, you're too thin, you're too fat, you're not smart enough, you're not good looking. Nobody's ever going to give you a shot. You wouldn't even give yourself a shot. The enemy wants to deceive us into buying lies, that, to not trust the spiritual promises of God. The, the enemy wants to get us to doubt them. Things like, well, God doesn't really hear your prayers. You've got to get somebody else to pray for this. Why would he listen to you? God isn't really with you. I mean, he's kind of here, he's in the whole world, but, but he's not walking with you. I mean, God loves the whole world, but you really think he loves you? I mean, look at what you've done. Look at how many times you've messed up. I mean, yeah, God had a plan for you, but come on, you blew it. He's given you so many chances. He's done with you. Yeah, God forgave you back then, and he forgave you again. He forgave you again, but you just keep screwing up. You really think he's going to keep forgiving you for this? I mean, you're just such a disappointment to God. If God's enemy can't get us to be mad at God, And he'll do everything he can to just get us to doubt God's promises and to disregard God's word that it doesn't apply to me. So then what do we do with this? If this is the battle that we're locked in, if this is is the right fight we need to fight, how do we make it through this? How do we walk into this? Well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, though we live in the world, Paul's saying, we're flesh and blood, we're trapped here. But we are given freedom from choosing to fight the wrong fight, from getting focused and drawn into things that aren't actually, they aren't going to benefit our lives at all. They're not going to honor God. They're not going to bless us. We don't need to get into fights on the outside. We have to battle on the inside. So he says, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. Church, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's not their agendas and their ideas and their opinions and their narrative. On the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. And then, I didn't read this verse before. I was kind of holding it till we got here. What does this mean? We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. Now, I think if I would have read verse 4 in and of itself, just isolated without context... I would have read, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we would say, amen, a hearty amen. Yes, God has given us supernatural power, the Holy Spirit, to do miracles and to see works of God happen. We need to believe in faith. But the context here of what Paul's talking about, he's saying arguments. These divine powers to demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments. Typically, I think we would say, yeah, it's not what I thought he meant there. Every pretension, that's an assumption or a a, a profession of what we believe about God or what someone else believes about God. He says every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, someone in opposition to God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Everything Paul's talking about here about divine power to demolish strongholds, it's the emphasis on the inner life. 
We talked about this last week, looking at peace. How often we, we, we lose peace, we get, we get bound up with stress and anxiety and worry and fear. We become preoccupied with what we want and our desires and our pursuits. And the first casualty is the inner life. We just walk away from nurturing the inner life. We walk away from living in the peace that God has everything under control, that he's sovereign, that we're in his hands, that our lives, that he has a plan, that he's unraveling it. The first casualty when we become so distracted is we lose sight of God's upside-down kingdom and, and we don't nurture our inner life. That deep, lasting peace of God, what's it replaced with? Stress, tension, and worry. The knowledge of God, the battlefield in our mind, to know who we are and who we belong to and pursue his purpose with us, all of a sudden it starts to fade and we just chase dreams of what we want and we, we've always hoped we could have and we compare ourselves to other people. Well, they have this and they have this and we want to have that too and, and we should. We, we should have what they have. These are all temporary distractions from the better life Jesus has for us. And these distractions are the enemy's way of building strongholds that trap us. It poisons our thinking. It's awesome. In, in 2 Timothy 2, we have two letters from the Apostle Paul written to a young leader in the church named Timothy. And, and they're really letters of mentorship. He's like, hey, this, this is what it looks like. This is how you practically lead people. These are the things you need to know. These are the ways you need to live in order to influence other people and be who God has called you to be. And so in 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 22, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Tim, man, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteousness, righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Now, I've just read these four verses. And my assumption would be, even in the middle of reading them, for many of us in the room online, mine started to drift. Yeah, it sounds good. That's great. Yeah, okay, great. You wrote this letter to Timothy. And, and maybe we could recall what's on the screen right now, because one verse is still up, but the other four before it, we're just like, yeah, I'm not real sure what it said. And that's 30 seconds after we read it, right? Paul has just given Timothy instructions, and the context of it is, People all over the Roman world are being arrested and, and executed because they won't recant Jesus rose from the grave. That's the context they're living in. And Paul's giving him advice, talking about peace and gentleness and kindness. Hold that in your mind for a moment. You know, a, a lot of times I have conversations with people. We even talk about this in, in my small group on Monday nights with guys. It's like, I don't, I, people will say, I just don't know if I've ever really heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. I just don't know that I've ever kind of sensed God say, this is for you, or, or I'm speaking to you. And Paul is writing this letter to mentor a younger leader how to fight the right fight in uncertain times. And in so doing, I want to read it again, but I want to slow down because I, I fundamentally believe that today when we're done, none of us in this room, none of us online that's participating today can ever say, you know what, I didn't, I've never heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. I believe right now today, and, and here's the truth, Oftentimes, we're showing our cards. I don't know if the Holy Spirit's ever really spoken to me. We're normally showing our cards because we're saying, I don't really read the Word of God that much. Because it's the primary means by which God wants to speak to us. Can He speak other ways? Absolutely. What's the primary way? It's His Word. So I want to read His Word again, just a few verses, very practical. But before we do that, I want us to pray. And I just want us to open our hearts and our minds and say, okay, God, I'm here. I'm listening. Whether you ever feel like the Holy Spirit's spoken to you or not, say, I want to hear you speak. Because I believe as we slow down and read these again, and this is really an exercise in what it means to do your own personal Bible study, slow down. Don't worry about volumes of reading. Slow down and ask the Holy Spirit to speak. Because I believe what, what you're going to experience, I, just, I have faith that when we seek God with all our hearts, he, he reveals himself to us. And when we're hungry to hear from him, he speaks to us. Not so much in an audible voice, although we can. Not so much in a vision that we see, although we can. But more than anything else, he speaks through his word directly to us. So would you, would you pray with me and, and open your heart? Lord Jesus, God, we're going to read your word. And Father, we're, we're asking you, we're hungry to hear your spirit speak. For some of us, God, we need comfort. For some of us, we need conviction. For some of us, we need correction. For some of us, we need challenged. Would you give us one 
word. One statement, one thing that just reveals yourself to us in these next few moments, God. Where even as soon as I read the verse, every, the different ones of us around the room are just going to go, Ugh, God, you're speaking to me. And God, this is all about your spirit because I don't know everybody's world. I don't know what's going on in everybody's life. I, I'm, I'm far too limited to know that, but you do. And your word is a double-edged sword and it cuts to the heart of things. So would you cut us today, Lord, with what it is you know we need. In your holy name we pray, amen. So the first verse we read as we slow down. Paul writing to Timothy, giving a word for the Lord, of the, from the Lord to him that applies to us 2,000 years later. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Are you chasing something in your life that could destroy your life if it was found out? Maybe it's something you flirted with and battled with for years. And God, you know right now God is saying you need to run from this and stop running to it. I don't know if it's ever been this quiet in this room. He says, instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Is God calling you to a radical change in your lifestyle? A new ethic, a new priority, a new view of the world. Is that what he's speaking to you? He says, enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. And so I'll ask you, are you fostering relationships, companions for the journey of life with brothers and sisters in Christ? And, and I get this can be difficult for all of us. We all have busy schedules. We all have a lot going on. Doesn't matter what's, what's in our world. Doesn't matter our age. Doesn't matter. It doesn't, none of that matters. We all have busy lives. We all have plenty of stuff to do. It's tough to find time for discipleship. But I make you a promise from my experience as a, as a pastor. Either, either you will make the time to enjoy companionship with brothers and sisters in Christ now when things in your life are going pretty okay. Or you will have much more time for discipleship later when things in your life blow up and you have nowhere else to turn but brothers and sisters in Christ to help figure out how you got where you are. And, and, and God wants us to see the word enjoy. Not loathe. He doesn't say loathe the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Enjoy. He's created us for relationship with him and relationship with each other. And he's given us as a gift to each other. Enjoy the companionship. This is a challenge of priorities. Maybe God's speaking to you through this. Hey, you're not really walking with people in your faith. Therefore, there's not a lot of victory you're going to experience. I mean, Jesus himself had to walk deeply connected to three other men. And if the Son of God needs that, I know I need it even more. Verse 23. Again, I say which I think is Paul saying, Timothy, you can be hard-headed. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you through that? Is his voice loud in your mind right now saying, hey, I need to convict you because you've been so, you've been so opinionated over this last year that it's often led you to fight the wrong fight with the wrong weapons. And you've thought that this enemy of flesh and blood is the enemy. That's not the real enemy. You seem satisfied to start fights. Don't be foolish. Verse 24, Paul continues, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Now the precursor here is a servant of the Lord. Does that describe you? Does that describe your aspiration? If you aspire to be a servant of the Lord, then God is giving us the path of what that looks like. Not quarrel. But be kind, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. So is patience with people who irritate you? Is that fruit of God's work in you evident or not really? Over the last year, year and a half, has kindness been your automatic response to irritating people? Or is the Holy Spirit saying something to you today? Verse 25, Paul says, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Now what I love about this is some of us up till this point, even though we read this verse four minutes ago, we forgot it was here. 
Instruct those who oppose the truth. There are times we need to speak up. Some of us have been like, yeah, but when do we say something? When do we resist it? When do we push back with what's true? Paul's saying there's times to oppose those who are believing lies, those who are in opposition to God, to instruct those who oppose the truth, but he adds the context around that opposition gently, not harshly. After all, gentleness is one of the fruits of God's spirit in us, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He already mentioned kindness before. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. The fruits of God's spirit inside of us. And most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, to gently instruct those who oppose God's truth, it happens one-on-one in a very small, intimate setting because there's so many contextual things that can be misunderstood that the enemy can use when it's in front of a crowd. And it can turn pretty hostile and inflammatory pretty quickly. If you don't believe me, watch some of the news stories that have happened over the last year. I would also argue 99.9% of the time to gently instruct those who oppose the truth, doing it on their social media wall is not going to be effective. It needs a relationship. It needs, means sitting face to face. And after this, Paul's going to make his closing statement. Verse 26. So when we look at what we read in 2 Corinthians 10 and we look at what he says in 2 Timothy 2, we see this theme, fight the right fight, be conscious of your inner thought life because what you think about matters, what you desire matters. Ultimately, your life is going to trend in the direction of your thoughts. If you don't want your life to go down that path of destruction, you have to learn to take every thought captive because your life will move in the direction of your thinking. You desire things your flesh craves, your life will be derailed by disaster. Don't let the lies of the enemy trap you in a stronghold. So, Timothy, run away from the longings of immature youth. Run after right living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Build relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters through fellowship and discipleship. You need each other, created you for each other. Enjoy those relationships. Don't fall into the trap of of, of being foolish uh, in in ignorant arguments that only start and, and perpetuate fighting. Don't quarrel with people, but be kind to everyone, whether you agree with them or not. And be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose what God says is true. Perhaps through your gentleness, God can change their hearts. Your display of gentleness and patience and peace, can change, God can use to change their hearts. And they will start to see what's true. And then Paul closes with this in verse 26. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the stronghold, the devil's trap. For they've been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. With God's help, we can renew our minds. We can learn to take every thought captive continually, daily, moment by moment. We can learn to audit our internal thought life and distinguish the thoughts that are going to bring us greater freedom in Christ and distinguish the thoughts and desires that are actually going to lead to greater captivity and separation from Christ. We are not a prisoner to our thoughts. You might need to say that out loud on a regular basis. You maybe have bought this life for a long time. Well, I can't. This is just how I think. That's not okay in relationship to Jesus any longer. You are not a prisoner of your thoughts. You may need to say it out loud. You may need to type it into the chat right now to encourage other people or comment on Facebook. I am not a prisoner to my thoughts anymore. That's a lie. No, I have the power of the Holy Spirit to help me learn to take my thoughts captive. That no matter what the stronghold is, that maybe I don't even know exists, Jesus has given me divine power, dynamite, to demolish strongholds and fortresses that seem impenetrable. Now, to to illustrate this, the the worship team is going to come up and kind of close us out with a song here in a moment so they can come on up. But to demonstrate this, I get that, that, you know, here's a 32, 35-minute message And this is a simple in concept, but man, it takes a long time to walk out in victory with God. Like I said, just because we've been given the Holy Spirit doesn't mean it solves all the trials and the struggles in our lives, but God's Holy Spirit has given us to help us navigate and walk out growing in victory. And so I'm just going to close with sharing kind of a stronghold for me, something that I've struggled with, something that I still continue to struggle with, one that I I was honest with you about at the beginning of the message when I was off stage and I had that audio playing. It's like, okay, you don't feel secure, you feel insecure, you don't think you can do this, but go on out there, you got to kind of fake it till you make it. Just put yourself out there. I want to share 
One of the biggest strongholds in my life that I can trace all the way back to when I was a kid was this, this lie that I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. That I'll never have what it takes. I remember being paralyzed about this in junior high, socially, in relationship, especially with, with other boys I went to school with, just never feeling like I had what it t- took. Never looking at myself very confidently. In senior high, it even it began to affect me athletically. And I had all these justifications and excuses. I was smaller and I wasn't as big and I wasn't as athletic. But man, I, had, I, I wanted to be. And so it just, but I don't have what it takes. And so I wouldn't even try that hard. I wouldn't even, it wouldn't, wouldn't even work at trying to improve myself very much because I just don't have what it takes. This was a, one of the big reasons why when I graduated high school in 1997, I didn't go right to college. I didn't go back to college till 2000, in large part because I was believing this lie that I don't have what it takes. It was one of the biggest reasons why it took me years to finally admit God was calling me to full-time vocational ministry. I knew it a long time before I actually admitted it in 1998-1999. I knew it was true, but I just didn't want to admit it because I looked at other pastors. I was like, God, I don't have what it takes. I can't do what they do. I'm not gifted like they're gifted. And then when I finally said, okay, I'll do ministry, but, but I'm only going to be a staff pastor. I never want to be the senior pastor. Like, that's boring. Board meetings and facilities and finances. Like, at least let me be with people. At least, like, hang out with youth and young people, young adults, or, or do music or discipleship or outreach, whatever it is. Let me do the, I'll do those the rest of my life for you, God, because I don't have what it takes to be a senior pastor. And then in 2008, our pastor resigned. And the, the board asked me, hey, have you ever thought about being a senior pastor? This is a moment maybe for transition. And if I'm being honest with you now, I didn't know it at the time. But I didn't even legitimize the conversation. I didn't even listen to him. I was just like, nope, not me. Not interested. Never going to be. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. We done? Okay, good. I'm out. Right? I'll stay a staff pastor. And for almost a year, I tried to dismiss what God was leading me. and saying, I can't do what the last guy did. I'm not the kind of leader. I'm not a cleric like him. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. And over the course of nine months, God finally made it crystal clear that this was, this was what he was calling me to. And so I either had to make a decision to be faithful or be unfaithful and do it myself and go my own way. And ultimately, with the courage of the Holy Spirit, I said, okay, I'll do it, but I have no idea what I'm doing and, and I don't know what you're up to. And God, if this blows up in our face, it's your fault, not mine, because I told you I was the bad, wrong guy for this. Sounds a little bit like Moses. Then in 2011, the church as a whole, over the course of a weekend, had conversations about, okay, God, what are you calling us to? And then a month later, after those conversations on that weekend and some conversations in town hall meetings, the whole church voted and said, okay, are we going to do this thing and take this big risk and go mobile on Sundays or not? And like 98% of the church said, yes, this is what God is calling us to. And immediately I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And then 24 hours later, I was like, no, this is the worst idea in the world. I don't know what I'm doing already. And now I don't even know even more. And then God blessed us in, in 2011 and 2012 and 2013. And at that time, I'm, my, my wife and I, we, we had Savannah in 2010. And then we made this decision in 2011. We had Kaylee in 2012. And the church is growing in 2012 and 2013. Then we have Addison in 2014. And Kaylee and Addison were complete surprises because we didn't even know if we could get pregnant. And so then I'm in this battle of, I, I don't have what it takes to, to be a pastor of a church that's growing like this and also be a dad and a husband that I need to be. And so when I would be focused on church stuff and we were mobile and we're reno- renovating this building, I just felt like I was disservicing my family. And then when I'm home with my family, I felt like I was dropping the ball with, with my leadership at the church. And then when I was asked to serve in leadership within our district to serve other pastors. The insecurities and lies crept in again. And I used the excuse that, well, you know, I, I just don't, I, I can't make that kind of time commitment to help with, with other churches. And in, in my heart of hearts, what I knew I was saying was, I don't even know what I'm doing. How can I help other pastors with what they're doing? I, I just, I'm not cut out for this. I don't have what it takes. And so they asked somebody else to do it. And he was here for a year and then him and his family felt transitioning to another church and they came back and asked me again. I said, okay, God, I get it. I'll say Yes. And even then, that insecurity rose up within me again. I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. In each one of these scenarios, my ability to discern the lie is getting quicker. It's not instantaneous, but it's getting quicker. What was all of junior high and high school, then a few years of my calling, and then a few years of, of, of I'll only be a staff pastor, and then less than a year to accept that call, and then less than a year to say yes to serving in the district. It's getting shorter and shorter, but it's still a stronghold that I battle with. It's an insecurity that I don't have what it takes. And so what I've learned is to 
to accept that statement because it is true. I'll never have what it takes, but Jesus does. And he's, if he's called me to it, then he'll give me what I need to lead through it. And so now when I, when I sense that lie, when I realize it, you don't have what it takes. And I'm just like, I don't want that to be the fortress anymore. You're right, I don't have what it takes. So now I just have to figure out, God, are you calling me this or not? If you are, you'll give me what's needed because you don't fail. I just want to be faithful. I don't want to try to be successful. I don't want to try to be fruitful. I'll leave the fruit to God. I'll leave the success to God. I just want to be faithful. That's one of my strongholds. God is helping me to discover and to demolish with what's true. What's the driving lie that's held you back? What's the truth that will set you free? Are you willing to take the journey of discovering freedom because God is willing to lead you there if you will follow him there? Lord Jesus, I lift up everybody that's here that can hear my voice, knowing that God, for every single one of us, the truth of your word is true in our lives. There are some lies we're believing. Sometimes, Lord, there are things that lessen our view of ourselves, like I'm not good enough, like I don't have what it takes, like I'm not smart enough, like I'll never get what I want. But God, sometimes the lies have overinflated egos. I can do anything, and I'm tough, and I'm resilient, and nobody will ever challenge me. And I've got so much to offer. God, it can be, it can be lies built in pride. It can be lies built in, in a lack of viewing ourselves as you've called us to. And what you call us to is humility. Humility is defined as a right view of ourselves before God. The things we're good at, the things we're not good at. And in all of this, God, the battle wages between our ears. Help us to renew our minds, Lord. Help us to learn to take thoughts captive. Help expose the lies that we've been believing for years. And would you give us patience as you help us to learn in time how to apply your truth from your word in ways that demolish the lies. In your awesome name we pray. Amen.